welcome to another What's Up podcast. We got a crowd in the studio today, and I'm going to see if I can get everybody's name right. These folks are from Opera Fayetteville, working on the production Glory Denied, and joining us is the Opera Fayetteville founder Tamara Ryan. Hello. The director of the production David Toro. Hello. Skipped right over the hard middle name there. <laughs> Chris Frisco, who is the music director, and Alexander Scheuermann, who is playing the younger version of the leading male role. Nailed it, yeah. <sighs> okay, the hard part's over. <laughs> Tell everybody, start by talking about where you're from and how you know Tamara and how you got to be here. You're from Fayetteville, right, Tamara? I am. This is my hometown. So how did you end up in Boston? You know... I moved to Boston in a very strange uh, confluence of events. I moved there to be close and help take care of a grandmother who was living in Maine at the time. And then there was sort of a backroom deal and she ended up moving to Arkansas to be <laughs> near my parents. Uh, but it worked out really well. I love the art scene there. I met my husband there. So, so it all worked out. It did. did you study opera at the UA? No, I studied at the Cleveland Institute of Music. Although my first voice lessons were at the University of Arkansas when I was in school here. Yeah. And was that the teacher you were just mentioning who, who would say, how are you feeling today if you were underdressed? You know, that's not. That, that was my teacher at the Cleveland Institute. But I studied with Elaine Sensel, Dr. Elaine Sensel. I Sensel, remember Elaine. Starting wow. in like 1997, maybe. <laughs> and you still look 20, so it couldn't have been that long ago. That's right. I'm precocious. <laughs> you I were eight three. at the time. Yeah. <laughs> and I was eight at the time, too. So, David, how do you know Tamara? How did you wind up here? Tell me your history in, you know, two minutes. Okay. Well, um, Tamara and I met at a young artist program in, in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, called Emerald City Opera, which is now Opera Steamboat. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a, an assistant director, young artist, and um, Tamara was playing uh, Susanna in Marriage Figaro, and she was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and then... Um, Tamara messaged me this past summer uh, and uh, asked if I was interested in Glory Denied, uh, and yes, I was. <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I read the book, I did some research, and uh, interviewed, and here I am. Is there a specific track to direct opera versus being directing theater or film or? It's its own beast in its own way because you do have to you learn how to balance the artistic expression of the music as well as the what's in the text, but also um, the stagecraft is similar but different. You have to learn how to make sure that the singers are getting their voices out uh, when you're when you're helping the designer design the sets. Make sure that it reinforces sound rather than absorbs sound. Um, uh, making sure singers know how to. Um, how to figure out opera naturalism, <laughs> which is a little different than like uh, theatrical naturalism. Which is kind of new because opera didn't used to look natural at all. Right. And so uh, I, when I, I used to be a singer and then uh, in grad school I got adopted by the theater department. And so my first studies in theater were in... <laughs> and we brought you to the dark side. <laughs> yes. Uh, so my first studies in directing was in theater, um, but then I wanted to take everything I learned in directing and physical theater and apply that to opera. Cool. Yeah. And Chris, you're the music director, so you sing, do you not? I, I don't sing anymore. I actually came here very uh, first as a singer uh, That's, nine I years ago. That's what I remembered. <laughs> I sang in the first two productions at Opera Fayetteville. And then I just kept coming back. Um, and this is now our ninth season. And home for you is New York City. It is. And so what is life like there 
When you left New York, were they running around screaming pandemic or was it okay? <laughs> no, that happened since I've been gone. So I'm looking oh, forward yeah. to flying back to that. Oh, okay, uh, I can take my mask off here in the <laughs> Should be a very exciting homecoming, actually. Yeah. Um, I mean, life in New York is never boring. There's always an awful lot going on artistically. Um, I'm very lucky in that I spend basically half the year working at home in New York and half the year on the road at various places. Um, uh, and I work about half in musical theater and half in opera. So ah. there's just always something going on. What's the most recent thing that you were involved with? Uh, I just led uh, the, a performance of a new civil rights opera at Opera Birmingham in January. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. And Alex, what about you? New York City, too. Yeah, I live in New York now um, by way of uh, Houston, Texas, and then Florida originally. I guess that was the exact opposite way you usually trace, trace your lineage. Born, come from Florida, go to Texas, then to uh, New York. And uh, yeah, I mean, like what Chris said, it's a, it's a crazy place. There's a lot of stuff going on, but it's a lot of fun. And you played this role recently in yes. Alabama? In Kentucky, Kentucky. Actually, which is where I met Chris. Ah. Um, uh, I was uh, a studio artist at Kentucky Opera, which is in Louisville. It's a great company, a lot of good people. And uh, Chris was the repetiteur for that production, which means he was playing piano for the rehearsals and then in the orchestra as well. Um, and I found out actually a couple, like about a week before we started, that Chris and Tammy, who I had not met at that point, were getting ready to put this production on. And I just shot him an email real quick and was like, hey, you don't know me, but I'm getting ready to work hey, with I you. Hey, I already know the words. Chris was like, you've got to look at this guy's yeah. materials. I'm sending you something over right now. I already know the words. It'll right? be fun. And a piece like this, it is no. It, it was a huge boon to uh, have a leg up on doing it once before. It's quite difficult. Oh, yeah. I would imagine. So how do you bring a production together? The point of talking about where everybody's from is how do you bring this together? And you're only here for a week or 10 days? Two, two weeks. Two weeks. <laughs> how, how do you magically do that? That's a summer repertory schedule. Right. Well, I mean, the standard of preparation in opera is really high. I think when we work with theater directors who haven't done opera before, they're always really astonished because seems like in the theatrical process you're able to really sort of discover the piece together and learn as you go um, but the expectation in our industry across the board is that you will show up on day one with your role no matter how rhythmically and melodically challenging perfectly memorized oh. that you're expected to have coached that and know every moment of it and to have really done some work thinking about the character and developing so rather than sort of discovering it together you have like four very developed individual pieces kind of combining that sounds really complicated I guess if you do it all the time. I mean, it's what I'm used to. So I love the idea of the first time we're all together, we're at a high level, so we're ready to do really quality work. But um, I can imagine if it's not what you're used to, it would seem crazy. <laughs> so how does the director, you have your four characters come together. In this piece, it's the longest serving POW from the Vietnam War has finally come home and the world is not what he expected it to be. So there's a younger and older version of him. His name is Jim Thompson and a younger and older version of his wife. How do you bring these four characters together when they came in with their characters already? Do you have to beat somebody? <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 a, it's rather thrilling the first day to figure out what how people see their characters. Uh, I do my own homework for coming. I, I, uh, for me, it's I have to figure out who these people are before I can even make them move. 
So I do my homework and I figure out who I think they are. And then it's thrilling to come in and see where the singers or how the singers see these people and what they bring to it and how, I, oh my gosh, I never thought about that. Or, or what if we considered this? And we, we do have a, a sometime, since everyone is so well prepared coming in, we have time to figure out how our, we tell this story together. Um, because we're not spending so much time pounding out notes or thinking, oh, I never thought about blah, blah, blah. But, um, it sounds so foreign to me because I'm a theater baby, right. you know. Right. Um, it's, it's, it's rather filling. And there's a certain amount of, of the music. We'll, we'll always find some kind of universalities within the music that give us similar ideas. We all are grounded in something, some similar thought that um, rarely is there a big conflict between uh, singers and directors, rarely. No, that's not right. It's right. But uh, but as far as this cast, nobody came in and nobody. We were never fighting over. No, I think really think it's this because we all had done our homework. We many, uh, I, most I think everyone read the book or at least was familiar with it or have listened to the story. Um, and having done our homework, we knew what we were getting ready for. Honestly, it, it, yeah. And in opera versus theater, there's a certain kind of flexibility that you don't have, both in terms of timing. If you have these. 16th notes that are going and going throughout the show. You can't sort of add a dramatic pause here right. for interpretation. And also your subtext kind of comes from the orchestra. So if there's a moment where the orchestra is making a really disturbing sound or a poignant sound, it, it's less open for interpretation, I think, than if you were working only with text where you would have so many choices to make. Now, did your interaction with Chris happen the same way like I would understand from musical theater, or is it very different? Uh, I mean, it's not dissimilar. Yeah. Um, I mean, in opera, the hierarchy is different than in music theater. Um, in music theater, the director is is the is the pinnacle of that of that pyramid, and in opera, usually it's the maestro, who we call the maestro. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> um, so so obviously, opera is the superior system. Yeah. Right? <laughs> obviously. <laughs> but I think we've collaborated pretty well, I mean, honestly. So on um, how we understand these, this show, how the characters, the narrative. Um, yeah. <laughs> I want to talk to you two about your characters because this sounds like a very real, very hard, very raw sort of story. Talk to me about your interpretation of Jim and how, how you informed it and how it's informed you. Yeah. Um, Jim Thompson was a kind of interesting guy. He, uh, I mean, I, I don't know if it's possible to sum up a person in only a few words, but he definitely always felt like he had something to prove. Um, he definitely bought very much into um, the American dream and that he could work his way up. Um, and that he, you know, I think part of that American dream is that by nature we all have the ability within us to, to achieve greatness. And I think he really, really believed that about himself. Um, and then he also just got very unlucky. Um, you know, getting shot down is unlucky. He made some bad decisions. Getting pushed to the front before he was ready was unlucky. And then he happened to be shot down over South Vietnam. So he, instead of going to, you know, the Hanoi Hilton, which was a terrible, terrible place, but at least there were other Americans there, he was completely isolated by himself. I think in the book it says he went for years at some point without yeah. meeting anyone else who spoke English. You know, um, so it, how, how do you approach a person who goes through something that you pray to God, you and everyone you know will never experience? You know, um, I, for me, the way to approach that is by finding the, like, the lowest common denominator of all those emotions, you know? So um, when he's in the cage, for instance, I've never been, 
he, he's in a two foot by two foot by five foot cage for four months at one point. It's kind of the peak of his torture. Um, obviously, I've never experienced that, but I have felt very um, trapped and held by things in my life, you know, mm-hmm. that are not nearly as serious. And so you're able to kind of find this kernel and then you explore what's in the music, what Tom Chapula wrote for you in the music. And, um, and you, by reading the book and things like that, you're kind of able to turn that into something that's more symbolic or more um, stylized than than if, if I you know if I actually just wanted to show you that I was stuck in a cage which for me is the important part about acting is telling a story not showing exactly how it feels um, so that's I think I may have gotten away from your original question no, you, but that's... I was with you all the way. so your half of the character takes him clear through the end of the war well it's it's not it's or it's not li- that it's linear. not super clear you know to me having two people play the same characters is a really cool effect because we see ourselves in a lot of different ways. You know, mm-hmm. I still, my image of myself is actually still of like 23 year old me, you know, like I still see myself as that kind of person. And I think Jim, even older Thompson sees himself as that young warrior fighter, you know? And so he does show up later on in the opera and we get these times where there's parallel storylines. David has us doing some kind of parallel storylines and Sometimes it's the same thing happening. Sometimes it's maybe what Jim wished happened um, while older Thompson and older Alish are actually living out the reality. Um, um, wow. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a very interesting Has thing. Has this one kept you awake some nights? Yes. Uh, I, I did. Uh, I have, this is the only role that I've ever dreamed in character of once. Wow. Um, and uh, it was a very, I, I was reading the book and I was getting really into it and thinking about it and I dreamed that I was in uh, a South Vietnamese camp, and they were trying to cut my hair. It was a very strange dream, wow. and uh, um, so then I decided I should probably take a step back and, and chill out for a little, little bit. <laughs> <laughs> now you're as ridiculous as I find this looking at you. You're playing the older version. I of am. The you wife. know, I think I'm actually older than the older version of Alice would have been. I think that's right. I think twenty is probably not <laughs> right. Right, twenty. Right. Is, we were no children. We were children. <laughs> I, I'm mature twenty. <laughs> so. What what is she like? How has she how has she followed you home and followed you around? And I find her so so relatable. I mean, on the one hand, she's having this one incredibly specific and traumatic experience, but she thought he was dead and had moved on with her. She life. did. She did. She moved on with her life, and um, it was nine years. You know, mm-hmm. I think there's a way of seeing this show. Um, there's a temptation to kind of paint. Alice as, as the villain and mm-hmm. she certainly in some ways is the villain to Thompson. I think you really see him feeling like you had a duty to be my beautiful early 1960s wife loyally waiting for me. That's what got me through is this very specific vision of who you are and you've totally failed to be that. Um, and he sings actually in one of his arias about all the changes that have taken place while he's gone, and some of them are all of which are probably disappointing. In the way movies are, but you know what he mentions Roe v. Wade, and he mentions Betty Friedan and her damn mystique. And uh, Alice has been left alone with four children uh, for nine years. She really is abandoned, and you hear her sing in her aria about how people from the VFW were calling her to tell her she's a whore. People who are protesters are calling her to tell her, your husband got what he deserved. We should be in Vietnam. He deserves to be dead. That she's attacked from all angles, that she's so totally alone, and she finds maybe some companionship and some solace with a partner. 
that's so demonized. And, and during this time that she's going through all of this, the role of women has expanded so much so that Thompson left and, and you get the impression that he would have been very attached to an idealized 1950s vision of a housewife no matter what, but he's really just fixated and held onto that vision in a way that's made him so inflexible. And then you have this woman who, on the one hand, as I said, is going through something so specific, but then who I feel is so relatable to any woman who's trying to say to her husband, that's not all the I house am. dress I'm and the heels are gone. Now, now I've had to learn to be something else. There's a fabulous 70s pantsuit, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it is fabulous. I'm, you know, I did what I had to do. I'm a complicated person, and I've also been through something. And you just see this disconnect where he can't ever quite get to the point of acknowledging, oh, you've also had a struggle. You're also an independent, separate person. Um, That's really painful. This sounds nothing like opera. It sounds (laughs) amazing and fascinating. Well, and some of the ways that he's angry and that he wants to hold on to things being a certain way and that she wants to expand, you sort of want those to be historical and Mm -hmm. like located in the 1970s, but... They are not. No. <laughs> no sorry, it's but very no. relatable in a day-to-day way much more than I sort of wish it was. And and, the thing, and Jim's struggle, too, is like not only yeah. was he, you know, he was stuck in this idea of what the what his 60s wife was, too, but he talks about over again, he needed that vision, that focus to get him through tortures and, and labor and all marches and everything. So it's something that it just wasn't like... This, and imagine Shangri-La yeah, went away. Right. He he focused. That was his fiction. That was his focus. He needed to get through. And so when he came back, that the big disappointment of it. And, I was like, oh, <laughs> like when I when I interviewed with with Chris and Tamara, I was saying that the one thing that's important for this production for me was to get both points of view. That it's not uh, not necessarily show the narration as totally from Old Thompson's point of view, mm-hmm. but also to get um, older Alice's point of view, what she went through. I grew up in a military town. My, my parents were both Air Force. Oh, wow. Um, I, I grew up in Colorado Springs. And so it's a, it's a true experience of, of families who are trying to um, trying to hold together while their their husbands are are deployed. or um, And uh, it's it's interesting just to... Uh, where was that thought going? I'm sorry. About that. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting to just see... I, like, I was talking to a good friend of mine whose um, uncle was a uh, missing in action in Vietnam. And his his wife went through the same thing. She needed him declared dead because she couldn't move on. She had a family to take care of. And she was stuck because the, the military wouldn't do that. Um, and, I Which mean, means you can't get any benefits. Can't you can't get, get any anything. Exactly. Because... And in the case of older Alice, she when Jim left, she had two girls, and she was eight months, nine months pregnant. She was very pregnant. Um, and then, like the the day that she found out he was captured, she went into labor. So he, when he came back, he never knew his son because mm-hmm. he had left beforehand. Um, one line that I I always go back to the the opera Rape of Lucretia because there's a great line in it uh, where they're talking about that um, it's a time tramples on the tired feet of women. And in, and in regards to the fact that the men are off at war and the women are maintaining Rome. And it's similar, like the men are off at war, so the, the, or, you know, Jim is off at war, and this is even before knowing that he was captured. Alice is behind maintaining a family, mm-hmm. trying, to move, trying to move forward, and she can't. And I don't think that role has changed from the Civil War no. to right now. It's the same thing. It's interesting in reading about the show before I wrote about it, you can see the opportunity for Alice to really be demonized mm-hmm. because she wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And of course, the review that I read that I felt like she was being demonized was mm-hmm. written by 
an older male writer. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> well, it's, it's a funny thing. In uh, the last... So I, I got to see the show in Houston, uh, and then I got to do it in Kentucky, and both times afterwards talking to people who saw it, there was almost, almost an even split at least amongst older generations, that the men sympathize with Jim and the women sympathize with Alice. I'd have bet you money on that. You know? Yeah. It's a fascinating show. What would you all say to people who hear opera and make the sign of the cross that they don't understand it and they're not going to, they don't, what do you say? Oh, she just got this look on her face like, I want to hurt them. <laughs> no, no, I just thought I have so many things to say. I don't even know where to start. I mean, I would say the kinds of shows that we're performing, A, they're in English, B, they're written in our present century, mm-hmm. they um, they feel cinematic. I think everything that we do has the same kind of engagement that you would have going to the theater or going to the movies. And what I find really unique about contemporary opera, as opposed to the canon, which I also really appreciate, is that the music is always supporting dramatically what's happening. That when something is scary, uh, you're going to hear those disturbing sounds. And then by contrast, when there's a moment of poignant beauty and it's poignant and beautiful, it's so much more moving in that moment of contrast. So almost like a soundtrack that we're used to. It really is. If you... you, go to the movies and, and you experience the way that the music really supports the action, this is very similar. It's not something that you need a specialized knowledge to understand. And I can't tell you how many people every year, whether you're doing these pop-up performances out in the community or people are coming to the opera, we have people every year who say to me, oh, I didn't know that this is what opera was. I would come all the time. I had this vision of like fancy people and a strange language and a heroine coughing herself to death. I like, I felt like it would be snobby and removed. And um, I mean, particularly because we're in such an intimate space in star theater. And I think that's always been part of our identity as a, um, as a company that you're right up there. You're seeing people's faces. You're having those emotions with them. And uh, just emotionally, there's no other art form where you can really sit in these larger-than-life emotions in quite such a just bombastic and thrilling and affecting way. And there's something so healing and uniting and magical about that particular form of emotional expression. Is it safe to say that if you love musical theater, this is not a leap at all? I mean, I think it yes. depends on what you love about musical theater. <laughs> no, no, I, I, would, I would say so. Yeah. You know, uh, you're talking about opera having a stigma. Modern music has a stigma, too, of being, uh, a lot of people call it, like, squeak fart, me- fart music. You know, people, <laughs> stuff like that, you know? Yeah. Um, and, like, that, it certainly does exist, and it has its place in the world. Um, but this piece in particular, and a lot of modern opera that I know Opera Favo puts on, um, is very, I mean, the modern American aesthetic is, is so influenced by composers like John Williams, and, you know, the people who write for film score mm-hmm. that you, you, you know, when you're listening to it, it's not actually challenging. You just kind of let yourself feel where the music is taking you. And it, it comes together in this idea of like total art with what's happening on stage. It's, I don't think it's difficult at all to, to consume. That was really well said. Chris, what do you think? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, one of the things that we always want people to know at Opera Fayetteville is that um, opera is very much alive and kicking in America. So there are new operas being written every day. It's very much part of our contemporary culture that people are writing these stories that are intrinsically American and very relevant to our day-to-day lives. And those are the kinds of things that we produce at Opera Fayetteville. So these are absolutely contemporary, relevant stories. They're easily accessible. They speak to a contemporary modern audience. And in that way, it's very much like musical theater in that it's uh, 
it's just very accessible and it speaks to the day-to-day person and it illuminates these stories that are very much part of our American lives. And we're so excited to tell this story about the military and about military families because it's a huge part of our American identity and something that we don't get to talk about enough in opera and classical music. So David, when you walk out of this show, this production, how, sh- how will you be feeling? Not you, but as an audience member. He just rolled his eyes at <laughs> No, no, rolling. I'm thinking, I'm thinking. That's interesting because uh, for me, I, 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 I never really aim to try to emotionally manipulate an audience. I want them to usually follow a story and, um, and I, I usually ask for the singers as much as possible to imbue as much honesty into it. Uh, so usually when they leave, they have, an, they have an emotional experience that hopefully they followed with the singers because of that emotional honesty or the, um, all the sentimentality, all, everything is earned. Uh, so I don't necessarily want them to go around feeling like, I feel sad or I feel affirmed. I, want, I, I usually like it at, when an audience leaves asking, what did I just see? What, what did I just see? But not in like a negative way, but just like, uh, what do I feel about what I just saw? How many what do Kleenex I should you bring to this? Lots of lots. Kleenex. Several. Yes. That was, lots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there definitely are definitely expressive moments. Okay. These fantastic, these fantastic That was singers. where I was trying to okay. get to is, do you need to bring the whole box or should your date have a handkerchief? Uh-huh. I mean, box. I think depending on your own crying tendency, the whole box might be a Okay, that's what I needed <laughs> to know. In the Tamara Ryan school of crying. <laughs> All right, Glory Denied, presented by Opera Fayetteville, is at 7.30 this Friday and Saturday, March 6th and 7th, in the Star Theater at the Walton Arts Center. Tickets start at $30, and you can find out more at operafayetteville.org. And tell your friends that they can find this podcast at nwadg.com slash podcast.